Rick Elias is a plane crash survivor, TED Talk speaker, and CEO of Red Ventures, a multi-billion dollar company. On this show, you'll hear conversations Rick feels lucky to have had with leaders, athletes, and innovators, plus three things you can learn from each. It's two people, 20 minutes, and three things with Rick Elias. Today, we'll hear from Lama Bowie, a Nobel Peace Prize winner who helped end the civil war in Liberia and revolutionize women's rights in Africa. Lema was just 17 years old when the first Liberian civil war started in 1989. Ten years later, a second war had begun, and by 2002, more than 200,000 citizens were dead. Soldiers on both sides looted and burned entire villages, raped thousands of women, and recruited young boys as young as eight years old to fight. Over time, she built an unprecedented coalition between Christian and Muslim women, a movement which grew to more than 40,000 women. Lema led them in weeks-long public protests, playing a pivotal part in ending the war and paving the way for Africa's first female head of state. Rick spoke with Lema about what it's like to stand up for something when no one else will, how anyone can start a movement, and how she's continuing to advocate for women in Africa today. This is Three Things with Rick Elias. Lima, it is a true honor to have you with us today. It really is a privilege. You are officially our first Nobel Peace Prize winner to visit Red Ventures, so we are honored to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm honored to be here. This is an amazing space. Thank you. Well, it is, uh, it's better now that you visit it, so thank you for being here. I'm humbled. So you're a mother of four. You're a social worker and trauma counselor working with ex-child soldiers. Civil war has been raging in Liberia for more than a decade. What inspires you to begin a movement? Well, um, I'll, I'll go back into my past. Many years ago, I had an actual dream. And in that dream, it's like God was telling me to wake up the women of Liberia to pray for peace. And I went to work the next morning. My boss was a pastor. So I went to him and said, listen, I had this dream. And it's very weird that I had this dream because first thing first, you know I can drink like a fish. So definitely God is not telling me to do this. Second thing, the boyfriend that I have, I'm not married to him. So technically, I'm a sinner. So there's no way God could be telling me. I'm sure he just told me to come and tell you to gather these women because you're a pastor. And he looked at me and said, no, Lema, sadly, the dream bearer is always the dream carrier. You have to carry this dream. You have to make this work. So I decided, okay, let me gather these women from my own church and let's pray. So we gather these women and then someone said, oh, you know, it's just us. It's not going to be impactful. Let's gather other women from other churches. And gradually it grew. It grew so big that I could not imagine that we were doing something like that. But what I learned from starting that group that we call the Christian Women Peace Initiative was that to start any movement, you need a crazy idea or a crazy dream. And I tell young people when I'm talking to them that when you have this crazy idea, the way you know that it's going to work, when you tell your parents or someone older that this is my dream or this is my idea, and they tell you, oh my God, you're crazy. That's the first sign. When you tell someone who's your peer that, oh, this is the idea, and they said, awesome, that's your first ally. Grab that crazy person, and the two of you can now start recruiting. No movement that I know have started with 10 people. 
It starts with one person, one crazy idea, another crazy friend, a third crazy friend, and eventually the, the commitment with which you're putting out your ideas, your dream for this movement would bring people to it. Gandhi yeah. says, first they know you, then they laugh at you, then they join you. So you have that kind of thing happening when you start a movement. So I've learned that. So when people say, oh, I want to do this big thing. I have this big dream that I want to do this big thing. But I'm wondering, will I get a thousand people? Hell no. You get one person and you and that one person will probably be standing in the street corner trying to convince people and you get another person. So the mass action campaign that we did in Liberia that led to the end of the war, we started with seven women and 10 U.S. dollars. Incredible. The next meeting was about 20-something, 65 was the third, and on and on and on. And when we finally unveiled it to the public, we were 2,500 women. When did you know that you guys could have that kind of impact in the destiny of a country? I really did not know. But I tell you something, there was a moment when the people who were powerful started panicking. It made me to, hmm, we're onto something here. For example, we went to Parliament, and this is in the early days of 2003, and they, we decided we'd sit where all of the parliamentarians parked their cars. Yeah. So when they come to work that morning, they had to find alternative parking because we were parked in the space. And so the Speaker of Parliament come down, come and he's turning around, his driver is trying to find a space, jumps out of his car and come and he's very angry. Who's using these women? Who's the leader of this group? So I stand up and say, I'm the leader of the group. And then he said, why are you using these women? You're looking for political power. You're looking for relevance and you're putting them in the street. I want you to remove these women right now. He started getting very, very negative and abusive. Unfortunately for him, he was like a fraction of my height, so I could see right on top of his head. And I said to him, if you just make one moment. So as we started going back and forth, I started getting emboldened. And people came and divided us, like stepped between us. And then he stomped off. Two days later, he came to the field where we used to sit. He's in his car, parked on the road. I'm sitting in a blazing hot sun with the women. We're protesting. And he sent his driver to say, tell Madam Bowie to come to me. And the driver came and said, the Speaker of Parliament said you should go. I said, tell the Speaker I'm in my office. He should come to my office. My office is an open field in right. hot sun. Yeah. When I saw him get out of his car yeah. and walk towards me, check, that was number two. We are on to something here. Yeah. And then he came to me because we had sent this letter to Charles Taylor to say we wanted to meet with him. He said, well, I just came to let you know that the president would meet with you. That wow. was the thing that finally we, I just said to myself, yeah, we're doing it. But there were many things that we needed to do or that we had been doing right. that made us to get to that place. So President Taylor finally grants a hearing for your group and you're chosen to speak on behalf of the movement. What was that like? Oh, my God. We, 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 we came 6 in the morning, so we always show up by 5 in the morning or 6 in the morning. So we came at 6, and you had, when I got there, probably 100 women and I arrived together. Buses load, trucks load of women. So by the time, because the meeting was supposed to be at 10. Yeah. So by 8 in the morning, 
you had all of us there. And then I decide, let me walk down to the executive mansion, which is the equivalent of the White House. Let me walk there and talk to security to see. So I get there and there was this guy who used to be one of the most notorious killers. He was sitting there in handcuffs and he motioned to me that he needed to talk to me. So I went to him and he said, you know, this thing that you all started, you can't stop. You have to continue. He said, because I'm actually going to jail because I've refused to go to the war front. Say, I am not killing one more innocent civilian again. I'm not going to war anymore. You all are the hope for this community. So we chatted for a while. And then I walked down and asked the other guard. I said to him, um, we're supposed to meet with the president. And he started laughing. They all just started laughing. Right. Say, oh, yes, you are the women who are supposed to come here. Well, the president told us that if you're less than 25, we shouldn't allow you to enter. First thing first, because everyone was so afraid of him. Yeah. They expected less than 25 people to show up. Yeah. So I asked him, I said, what if we're more than 25? Ha ha. If you're more than 25, then you can come. So then I whip out my phone. I call the other leader up and say, put the women in line. A sea of white. And this guy go, oh my God, these women are really serious. So then they call his office to say the women are coming, but they're over a thousand. And then he said he will only see 10 of us. And I said, hell no. So I told the guard who came to call us and said the president said 10. I said, no, I'm not even carrying 10 people in his office to dignify his request. By that time, I was raging mad. I was ready to die. I was ready to go to prison. But like everything. So we... And then the guard kept running after me and saying, why are you so difficult? Why do you want to put yourself in trouble? Just bring 10 people. And I'm like, no, I'm not bringing 10 people. I'm going to tell the president that he will come down and speak to these women. So midway upstairs, the guys got a call and he said, let's go back down. The president is coming down. So oh, wow. we go back down. Yeah. And then he comes and they offer us these real plush chairs. So we waited, myself and some of the leaders, they put the chairs and we sit on the floor in front of the chairs. Yeah. That was our ultimate protest because the women sitting down were sitting on the floor. And then when they asked me to speak, they positioned the podium in a way that my back was going to be to him. And I told them no. So I started turning the podium so that I could face him. And they were like, oh my God, why is she yes. like this? <laughs> And, and, and once I read the statement, I realized that the statement was just too sterile. Yeah. It, was just, it just did not represent right. what these ordinary women, including myself, were going through. Right. So I had to add something. And that's when I added that the women of this country were tired of being raped. We're tired of our children going to bed hungry. We're tired of our children being adopted and taken to, to war front. We're just tired. And we're asking you now to put an end to this. And then he agreed for the first time publicly to go to the peace talk. That's amazing. That's amazing. Did you see him again? I never saw him again I, because we were just focused on doing the work that we were doing. And once we went to the peace talk, we kept the pressure on. And then when the peace agreement was signed, we went back to Liberia, yeah. took all 400 pages of that document and tried to simplify it so that the women, over, by that time our movement had grown to maybe 
20, 30,000 women, 10 different locations. So we had to simplify the agreement and set benchmarks to say to women communities, if you don't see this happening, do this in your community at this time. This should be happening at this time. So really and truly just breaking it down into activities, into proclamations and things so that these women will understand that this was happening. Wow. If you saw him again, what would you tell him? Well, I, you know, I definitely say to him that you had an opportunity to transform your life, to transform a nation, and to be a leader, but you rather choose to be a ruler. Yeah. And that I pity him. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's pivot a little bit. Let's go to uh, all the good you're doing in the world, and especially in Liberia, and especially with young women. Uh, tell us about you know, your inspiration there, and tell us about your dream. Well, I grew up in a family of five daughters. We did not have a brother when we were growing up, and so it was just my siblings and I. My grandmother, who's still alive today, she's 111. Oh, my goodness. Was the one who took care of us, and I would tell everyone that she give us our one-on-one feminism, you know, like that first crash course into you have to be strong. A girl has a place in this world. You, you and the boys are equal. There's no, because when we're growing up, we lived in a tough neighborhood. If you came home and said, Ma, someone gave me a punch. She said, do you have a brother to fight for you? No, go back and punch them. So like that. And then as we started growing older, she would give us like a dollar. I was very slow when it came to money because every time she would give, I would just go and buy candy, like grab all my friends. But what she was telling, teaching us was economic empowerment. So at the end of the year, she would come and say, oh, during Christmas, I gave you a dollar. How much have you added to that dollar? And then she would double that money. I think it took me like four years to really catch on that she was telling us, right. use this dollar to make. So I grew up in that background of really strong women and my father also never regretted having five daughters because my ethnic group does the female genital mutilation fgm and when we were of that age and it was time for us to go through the ceremony it was my father who decided not my daughters not on my watch so he always used to say to us that his legacy with us that he wasn't going to leave us any property he wasn't going to leave us anything but education mm. was what he was striving to leave so every time, even growing up, when men used to come and say, boys would come and say they like us, my father would say, take a good look at my daughter. Do you see any scar on her? My older sisters were getting married. No, if you get tired, bring her back. You hit my child, I will find you and I will kill you. So for an African home, it was totally not, you know, the norm. So I grew up in a space of empowerment. And then as the war came, there were many things that happened to me. I got into an abusive relationship had four children in five years. It was really, really tough. And all through my journey, there was always a woman who stepped in or a man. But there, was, there were always angels who stepped in and catered to me. For example, when I had my third child, I was a refugee in Ghana. He came early, like eight weeks early. That baby was born. I did not have any money. They put us on the floor. So you have a preemie, and then you sleep in the hallway on the bare floor of a hospital. And I take this baby who's less than two pounds like this and put him in my clothes. So he's, this is his incubator. And for a week, I'm on that floor, and people will pass and throw me bread. 
and throw me coins and I would just cry all day. One day this woman come out of her room. Apparently someone goes to visit her and say, there's this pretty girl. I was 20 something and I looked like I was 12. Or I, was, I looked like I was 16, between yeah. 12 and 16. Yeah. So she came and said, come into my room. So she actually took us from the hallway and told the hospital staff that she had a private room and that she was taking us in. She bathed that baby, wrapped him up in something nice, gave me food. I couldn't eat. I was just crying. And she apparently watched me cry for maybe an hour, and then she finally got fed up and said, shut up. Just shut the hell up right now. She asked, have you been to school? I said, yes, I'm a high school graduate. I have a few years of college education. And she said, this is your third child. I said, yes. She said, you can make your life. You, no one else by the help of God, can make these children to be successful. Stop crying. Even if you don't have money to send them to school, teach them the alphabet, teach them to write from home. But you have to be strong. A few days later, my doctor who used to be taking care of me came and he paid my bill and went home. So all of these different experiences, including my own grandmother, my mother, aunties, and different people. And now you've shifted your focus to education for young women. What do you hope will be your ultimate legacy? When I won the Nobel Peace Prize, the first thing that came to mind was someone, I have a group of friends, they asked, so what next? Your legacy? And I was like, duh, I won the prize. That's my legacy. And they're like, mm-mm. You win the prize at 39, that's not your legacy. What you do with that prize. So I said, education and girls. So it led me on a journey that I felt would have been the easiest. I, I thought, okay. When you say you're doing girls' education, it's going to be easy for people to fund. It's going to be easy for girls to go to school. It's going to be easy for this thing to happen, that thing. No. So six years down the road, over 200 students have passed through or still in our program. Over 2,000 more have benefited. So we have the direct scholarship program. We have the indirect scholarship program. And we have the emergency grant for girls who are like last minute to time of their program and can't find money to go to school. But beyond that, I still do peace work. I'm still out in the field working in conflict areas. I work with women in South Sudan. I've been working in Libya with different groups. Now I've been asked to help with the women in Cameroon. So it's, it's a journey that never stops. And I feel like if I ever have to stop doing what I'm doing, life will be meaningless to me. You know, I'm going to make a prediction. I just had this feeling. I think you may be, I don't know if there's anybody else out there that this has happened to them, but I think you, uh, you may win a, another Nobel Peace Prize. I think you may get two. That may be a first. Is there anybody who's won two? I, I think in the sciences, but that, that, that definitely is going to be a thing. But let me be honest with you, Rick. When I do this, I do this because I come from a small community yeah. that invested in me. Whether it's those mothers who gave me my bath, when I was playing at their house or whether it's that woman who took me from the hallway in the hospital or whether it's those women who entrusted their lives with me to say, let's start a movement, we'll follow you. I, I do all that I do because the Bible says and the old people say, to whom much is given, much is expected in return. It may not be a lot, but I'm grateful to God just for the space, the opportunity to do some good and to be at Red Ventures. Uh, you know, it is, uh, 
I, I think we, we will be a better company because you were here. You know, we, we feel that somehow we have been blessed with a tremendous amount of fortune as a company. And, and the fortune is not financial. The fortune is the energy that exists. And we're looking for ways to be a different kind of company, a company that stands for a lot more than what typical companies do. So I am, uh, it's honored to have you here, and thank you so much for coming. And I take my hat off to you, and in my own little way, I say God bless you for all of the good that you've been doing and continue to do in the world. Because I've come to realize that the more you give, the more he gives to you. So don't worry, you'll be breaking bank accounts <laughs> because of the good that you're doing in this world. Thank you so much for being a light in a dark world. You're very kind. Thank you for coming. So here are the three things I take from my conversation with Lema. First is that the truth about courage is all about stepping towards your fears. You gotta get ignored, you gotta get hated, and then you will get followers. Number two is you gotta get in the game if you're really truly passionate about something. You gotta put a bunch of dots on the board, and then in time you will be able to connect them by looking back. And number three is that awards are like perfume. They're nice to smell, dangerous to swallow. Lema clearly has not let her award stop her drive to change her world. If you're enjoying the Three Things Podcast, let us know. Be sure to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with Rick directly on Twitter at Rick Elias. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Next time on Three Things, celebrity chef Bobby Flay. Thanks for listening.